The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. Thank you for coming this morning. It's wonderful to see your faces and to see our sanctuary filling back up and to know that God has walked with us through the trying times and will walk with us through the ones that come. We do, I want to welcome, uh, we have a, uh, some of our global partners are back. Joe and Kara Herzberg are over here somewhere. There they are, yep, spread out. They started like this and they just keep going like that. And uh, John and Pamela Kovacs, I think are in the back, uh, back from Central Asia. So we, we always want to be aware that our global partners are around and let them know that we love them. It's a big church. It's easy to kind of get lost in the shuffle, but we're so glad that you guys are back uh, for a season. And uh, I, if you'll indulge me, I also want to give a special welcome uh, to my, my sister is here with her husband and my two beautiful nieces are visiting and we're able to join us for church today. And so uh, it's just a blessing all the way around. And um, so as we uh, go forward here, um, I'm going to read the text, Acts 6, if you're visiting with us or, or maybe you're just coming back. And your internet's been down. Uh, maybe you haven't been able to be with us online. I don't know. We're, we're in the book of Acts, and we're just taking it a section at a time. So we're in Acts 6 this morning, and I'll read for us, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before these apostles, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are with us, that you love us, that you, that you are intimately involved in all of our doings, that you are working to bring about the best possible of all outcomes for your glory and our good. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that whatever comes our way must turn out for our good because you have promised and you are powerful. None is able to snatch us out of your hand and you care for us. And so we pray now as we look into your word that you would forge us even closer together in unity that with one voice we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at this passage and sort of keep in mind that there's what's happening in this story and there's sort of the cosmic reality that it points to. This is how we understand the Bible, especially in portions of the Bible that are narrative, that tell what happened. These things really did happen. And as they happened, they weren't incidental. Luke didn't just pick out a, a story here because he thought it would be neat or, or randomly. Every word is for our good. Every Every account is an occasion for our instruction to help us grow in our faith, to help us grow in treasuring Christ above all, to help us grow in loving one another, to help us grow in preaching the gospel to our neighbors near and far. Every word is for that. 
And so here we have this account. We have this account of a controversy that arises in the church. Um, this reminded me of when Teresa and I were just starting out, young, married couple, and we went to this little church in the south, and it was a really good church, really nice people, good people, sound doctrine, committed to the word. And while we were there, a controversy rose up within the church, and there were two sides to this controversy. And there were, in this little, little church, uh, 104 voting members. And I remember as a meeting was called to, to try to settle the controversy, and it was, it was somewhat discouraging. We were a brand new couple, brand new to this church, and we just sort of had idealism all over us. And when a controversy arose, it was, it was discouraging. And then we thought, well, surely we'll, 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 we'll go to the meeting and, and we'll settle it. And before the meeting, we're getting phone calls from people in the church. There's no email or text at that point. We probably would have been flooded with those. And they're, and they're politicking. They're trying to get us to be on their side or, the, or against the other side. And it, it just felt so yucky. And then the meeting came and we went to the meeting and... and, and the vote came, and it doesn't matter what the issue was. I'll, I'd, I'd be willing to tell you, it's just not worth taking the time. So 104 voting members, and the vote comes, and the vote is 52 to 52. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I just about walked away from the whole thing. I'm like, this isn't any better than the Elks Club or the latest mayoral race. This is, this is the church. We're one people. We love each other. We have Jesus uniting us. We have the Holy Spirit empowering us. We have the Word of God guiding us into all truth. 52 to 52. As we've worked through the book of Acts, we've observed that the Word of God is spreading the gospel is spreading. God is on the move. Jesus is being exalted. People are turning to him. We see the word of God in the church opposed. It's spreading not in some sort of peaceful, happy, everybody's got a smile on their face. It's, it's spreading in opposition. We see the civil authorities opposing Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. The civil authorities branded him criminal and executed him. And it would seem that maybe all was lost. But all was not lost as he rose from the dead and conquered all of our enemies. But the church, as the church goes on, we see it opposed again, opposed by the religious authorities. We see the, the attempt to squelch the gospel, to squelch this new movement of God. We see the attempt to undermine the word of God and the gospel through hypocrisy and theft and deceit. And yet again, the gospel prevails. God prevails. Jesus prevails. 
This is what we see in Acts. The church is growing and meets opposition and prevails. God prevails. The church meets opposition and the gospel spreads. So what's happening here? What's happening in chapter 6? We see another form of opposition, but this one's a little bit different. This isn't the authorities from the outside. This may be the most insidious, threatening uh, opposition yet, for it comes from within. And it comes from a conflict within the people. As far as we know and can tell, good people. We see this, this prospect that the church may be divided because within there's a conflict, there's a controversy. This is clearly a controversy within the church among true believers. Brothers and sisters, I believe that God wants to build our confidence through this account that there is no threat that we may experience that the church hasn't already faced and through which God will not be faithful. It calls to mind 1 Corinthians 10, 13, though this is meant sort of on a personal level, I think it applies at a corporate level. No temptation has overtaken you that, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God is faithful and he will not let the church be opposed beyond his ability to deliver it through that opposition. Not only that, he will use that opposition to glorify himself and spread the gospel more. You don't want to oppose God. You look like the most of fools. Because in your opposition, not only does God win, but he uses your opposition to magnify his name. And we see that here in this account. You might think, it's not that big a deal, Ken. You're making a bigger deal of this than, than it seems like. I don't think so. A controversy arises. A conflict arises. A complaint arises. That can be the seed that will split any church. One little controversy multiplying among God's people. Sides. Us and them. Not us. My group. And that other in the church. I believe more threatening than if the mayor and the governor and the president try to shut us down. More threatening than if they throw us in jail. Let's all go to jail together. We're going to sing in jail. But if we get at each other and tear each other down, We could die from within. So I believe God put this in his word to encourage us that he's there in conflict. He's there in these times. It's true. It's true. Even when conflict is not from without but within. It's true. Even when friends posture themselves as enemies. It's true because God says, through the prophet Isaiah, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. This is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than Bethlehem Baptist Church. This is God's purpose 
to glorify his name through his son to the ends of the earth till he returns. And even our infighting could not stop it. But we need to be encouraged that this is true. So let's look at it. Let's dive in. What's the problem? In this time of fruitfulness and visible growth, the church, the number of disciples, is increasing. The picture of sacrificial love towards one another. So in this time where the church is increasing and the sacrificial love of caring for one another is happening, it's disrupted by a complaint. So here's the backdrop. From its inception, the church, from its inception, this is so encouraging, has been a diverse group. Even when it was just the Jews in Jerusalem, you had different kind of Jews. Remember that, that Jews had, would come from all over, and they would come together, and they were there at Pentecost, and there was essentially two different groups. There were the Jewish, Jerusalem, Palestinian Jews, and there were those who were spread out, the Hellenist Jews, the locals and the ones who had come in, who were transplanted. And the locals were the Hebrews. They spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. They were sort of the true blood Jews. And then there were those who had come in, and they were mainly Greek-speaking. They had lost generations before their ability to speak Hebrew, Aramaic, and they were spoke Greek. And so you had linguistic and cultural differences right at the beginning. Don't read the book of Acts and think, oh, they were all together, and now today we got all these differences that we do. They were, they were as culturally distinct and as primed for a conflict as anybody anywhere ever has been. Right there in the new church. But they were united by Jesus and his gospel. They confessed Christ as Lord, Savior, and treasure overall. So at this point, the new church is, has these distinct groups, and the sort of in crowd, it appears, the Jerusalem Hebrews, the Hebrews, are neglecting the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking widows, in the daily distribution of food. So the church is gathered. People have needs, as we've already seen earlier in Acts. People are bringing, who have means, are bringing and laying it at the apostles' feet. They're selling land. They're, they're selling things. The apostles are taking those proceeds, and they're distributing those among the church as they have need. And lo and behold, the Hebrews, are widows, are getting the food in the daily distribution, and the, the Greek-speaking widows are being overlooked. I mean, it's appalling. It really is appalling. What if we said in this church, unless you're Swedish, you don't get coffee? <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable that this would be happening. Don't, I, don't idealize the early church. The early church has got issues from day one. And so a complaint arises. It's an understandable complaint. And we probably don't need to spend a whole lot of time understanding why this is not a good thing. Caring for one another was and is a hallmark of the Christian church. We need only to back up and review the example from Acts 4. From Acts 4.34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. And of course, a widow would be at a, at a, at a disadvantage from even the average person particularly in this time. 
So this, this group of Greek-speaking widows is being overlooked, and some go and represent them to the apostles and say, hey, we got a problem here. And of course, the Bible is so clear about the, the need for us to care for widows. Exodus twenty-two twenty-two: you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. James 1, 27, religion, and James would have surely been here. So later when he writes his, his uh, epistle, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained from the world. So we don't need, we don't need to debate whether caring for widows is, is essential, core, normal for the Christian church. Now, as we look into this, it, it's clear that the apostles were not initially aware of the problem. You might, you might ask, understandably, why, didn't, why, did this, why was this allowed to happen in the first place? Where were the apostles? Did they not care about the widows? Well, it seems clear that they didn't know this was happening. And they didn't know until it was brought to their attention. It won't do to conclude that by virtue of occupying a place of leadership, they were corrupt or callous or insensitive to injustice. This is a, somewhat of a theme. Sometimes some, some people would say, if you're in leadership, you are corrupt not to be trusted because you're a leader. That's not the way the church was established. And it's, it's clear they didn't know what was happening until it was brought to their attention. Keep in mind that the church at this point probably numbers, it's definitely in the thousands, it's probably between 10 and 20,000. And also keep in mind, there's no church across the street or across town. This is the church. This is it at this point. And so you have this, this small, relatively small group of, of apostles providing leadership for a church of maybe 15,000 plus or so. So Luke's account actually shows us, and it's a great challenge to leaders in the church. It's a great challenge to me. I feel it. We've got a lot of people, but we need to be a attentive to their needs and we need to be able to have we need to be in a posture and that people can bring their needs to the leaders and the leaders can respond to those needs as the people recognize those needs and bring them forward we'll talk more about that in just a minute but so so here we are again that the church is there's a struggle there's the potential for the church to fail this time, again, it's not by the civil authorities, the religious authorities, or by counterfeits. It's by the specter of controversy and division within. Will ethnic and cultural differences and, and conflict split the church? Is King Jesus really able to keep this people together in love? As one, serving and loving one. Can he really do it? Or is it just going to go the wayside that it always does when controversy arises People pick sides, often along cultural, ethnic lines, and I'm out. What's going to happen? Let's look at the solution. So first, the apostles listen. <laughs> they have to assess whether the complaint is legitimate. That's their duty. To be honest, not all complaints are equal. We get all kinds of complaints as leaders. And I, and I, and I, I hesitate to say this, and my fellow elders may chastise me for it, but I'm just going to be honest Keep them coming. We don't know unless you tell us. And then when you tell us, ask God for grace to be at peace with the response you receive. 
We've got signs out there on the, uh, on the parking lot that say, on Sundays, don't park here unless you're 80 or over. You know how those signs got there? Mark Evans sent me an email and said, our 80-year-olds can't park and they're having to walk two blocks to get to church. All right, I'll put some signs up there. What a great complaint. I had no idea. I don't want our 80-plus-year-olds having to walk when teenagers are skipping in five feet away. And nobody does. Teenagers don't want that either. They just didn't know either. So we, we, we want complaints. We want issues so we can, we can address them. It seems that part of the complaint included the prospect that the apostles themselves should be personally involved to make it right. So the problem has been posed along the expectation, along with the expectation of their way to fix it. That's understandable. But again, working together to arrive at the right solution. Mark could have said, Pastor Ken, our 80-plus-year-olds are not having any parking in the lot. I'd like you to put on a yellow vest and go out there and make sure that you reserve those spots so they come in. That could be a solution. I would have to say, brother, I got other things that I have to do. Let's figure this out. We can figure this out. So the answer from the apostles starts with clarifying that they will not personally oversee the solution. I would imagine for some in that moment, it might have been a bit frustrating. The first thing they say is, we cannot give up this ministry of the word to go do that. That's the first thing they say. Might not have been that satisfying to everyone, to those who brought the complaint forward. The apostles clarify that their calling to preach the word, to continue to preach the gospel of God's grace through the saving work of Christ, could not be subordinated to anything, even to personally address the despicable practice of neglecting a group of widows in the church. This might have bothered some who insisted that the apostles turn their attention and focus to this injustice to prove that it was important to them. But of course, even though the apostles assert the primacy of preaching the word and the necessary and, and necessary that they give their time and energy and focus to it, they are committed to providing a solution. That's good leadership. That's a good example. So here's the details. They instruct the people to pick seven men, full of good repute, the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. I think those, th those three things matter. They are distinct. Full of good repute, the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. They, they have... Good, they must have a good reputation and standing in the church and community. They exhibit true faith in Jesus Christ and gospel fruit. That is, they, you, you can find people with good reputation who aren't born again in a community. And that's, that's a temptation sometimes in the church. This person is, they, they make a lot of money. They're a good businessman or woman. They, you know, do a lot of charitable stuff. That's wonderful. This isn't, that's not a qualification. That doesn't meet the standard to serve God's people. So they must be good reputation, but also full of the Holy Spirit, empowered by God in their good works, looking to Jesus for their affirmation, gifted by the Holy Spirit and using those gifts to bless God's people. And then, and then wisdom. Specifically, they are men of wisdom. They can exercise discernment and judge between what is good and what is not, what is likely to bless or not. Specifically, how to navigate a sticky situation that could ultimately divide the church. It is a little weird, but it's just the truth that you can be good reputation and full of the Spirit and really kind of clueless in how to handle problems. 
So we want people to handle problems who are good at that, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and who have character that is so, so strong that everyone knows it. The apostles remind the people that they will continue to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So the people put seven men forward. All of them, by the way, have Greek names. That doesn't mean that they were all of the Hellenists, the Greeks, but they probably were. Some Jews had Greek names, but they probably were, which means that the, that the people brought forward those that they trusted the most to make sure that the widows got their share of the food and the distribution. And, and so, thankfully, we don't see a, well, we got to have equal representation here. Just everyone accepts this. So they, they bring forward the seven. We don't know much about the seven. We know a lot about Stephen. Um, we don't know much. We don't know anything about most of them, specifically beyond the fact that they are, the people bring them forward under the qualifications that the elders have stipulated. This is broadly, now this, this, this whole event is broadly accepted in the church as the inception of the office of deacon. So it's very important on a number of levels. So the, the, the focus on ministry through serving is the heart of the office of deacon as it is developed from this point forward in the early church. We don't see this explicit, just to be clear. It doesn't say, here's where deacon started. But this, this is where you see the partnership between the elders and the ministry of, the, of preaching and the word, preaching and prayer, and deacons and serving the church. You see this partnership and it, it's born out of controversy. So I just want you to note for a moment, just step back with a moment and see what could have been easily the division of the church right into two churches, the Hebrew church and the Greek church. And then from there on and on and on, what could have been that actually by God's sovereign grace and goodness to his people is the place where he puts on display this partnership between elders and deacons to serve the people. It's just a wonderful thing. It's just a wonderful thing. So the apostles lay their hands on the seven. So remember, the, they said, go pick seven. So the people go pick the seven. The apostles tell them to do that. Then they bring the seven to the apostles. And then the apostles lay their hands on them and commission them to this new ministry of service to the church and partnership with the apostles. So we have this paradigm of the apostles and this group of seven that we now see expressed and codified in the New Testament as the ministry and partnership between elders and deacons in a church. So I have six lessons from this text that I want to offer to you to consider. And there could be 106. We're going to go with six, assuming that you want to eat lunch sometime today. Number one, we must not overlook or neglect our widows and other vulnerable members at Bethlehem and specifically here at our campus. We must recognize that it's easy or it can happen. It can happen with no intention. I really don't know. You know, I, 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 I tend to think that it's, it's just easy to be, to discriminate. I think it's built in every one of our hearts. I don't know, I, I doubt or, you know, we don't know, but I doubt that it was a uh, conspiracy. Hey, let's make sure those widows don't get any food. 
I doubt it. I think it was the normal busyness and the just sort of implicit built-in bias. You know, there's the widows that I know, and I get them the food, and I'm moving around. And and, and, but just the pattern emerges where the Greek-speaking widows aren't getting the food. And so I don't know anyone in our church who wants to hurt anyone. I'm not aware of anyone who wants to hurt anyone, much less a vulnerable person. Can you imagine? I just, it's unthinkable. It's this little group, you know, scheming against the orphans. That's not happening here. But what, what, the reason the Bible calls attention to the plight, the need of widows, of orphans, vulnerable in general, is because we're apt to just pass them by. So we have to be conscious about the vulnerable among us, about those who are marginalized, those on the outskirts, those who don't fit in, those who don't put themselves forward, those who have some sort of struggle, trial, challenge, suffering. We must not overlook or neglect our widows, our orphans, other vulnerable members here. Number two, and these are going to kind of weave together. The office and ministry of deacon are essential to a healthy church. Um, we, we, I'm just be honest, we've had, <laughs> we've had false starts on this. It's like, all right, we're going to do it this time. We're all lining up. On your marks, get set. Oh, we don't, hmm. All right, deacons, we're lining up. Everybody ready? We're going to do it this time. Everybody ready? Here we go. Line up. We're doing it. Deacons, we need to have, everybody agree, right? Yes, we're all in line, ready, set. Uh, thing, uh, that's been kind of our deacon story at the downtown campus. It's good to just be honest about it. Don't, you know, we get these phone calls. It's, uh, we get these phone calls at the office. Hey, we're at so-so church, you know, in Saskatchewan, and uh, we're trying to do a new youth ministry thing, and we, we think you're awesome. Tell us how you do it, you know. Whenever they call about deacons, I'm like, just hang on, hang up. <laughs> we're going we're to mess them up. Number three, again, weaving this together, deploying our members into areas where they are gifted and called to serve the body is an ongoing priority led by the elders as the elders maintain their focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So you should be thinking right now, well, what are you doing about it? <laughs> I hope you're thinking that. Give me a little more meat on the bone here, Curry. I need to know, you know, you're saying it's a, what are we, what are we doing? Well, I am encouraged to report to you that as you know, um, should know, Pastor Chuck and Carol have been uh, serving here for 24 plus years. And Pastor Chuck, who's, who's uh, like a, he's like Bethlehem's ping pong ball. He's bounced all over the place doing all kinds of things. Uh, he is back at the downtown campus. And one of his stated job description priorities is to help us develop our deacon ministry. And um, so, um, and, and, so this is underway, and uh, Pastor Chuck gave a little report to the downtown elders last week that things are happening. Uh, some of you already know this. We've got a number of applicants for deacon. I, I, was, I was so encouraged, I almost started crying because I just felt like I've watched this kind of false start thing and our burden and our need, our need for deacons to partner with the elders to love and serve our body. And, and, uh, and, and I... And, and when he reported what he reported, I just thought, I think it's actually happening. We, we do have deacons. And by the way, and those of you who are deacons now and serving, thank you, thank you, thank you for serving our body. And we need more. We need more to serve our body. So just to, just to make sure we, we don't miss what I'm saying here, the qualifications for deacon are in 1 Timothy 
and they very closely mirror the qualification for, for elder. The only, the only noteworthy distinction really is the, is the teaching gift and call of an elder, which, just to be clear, doesn't mean that a deacon wouldn't have teaching gifts. It's just not a requirement, a, a qualification to be a deacon. Many deacons teach, um, but that's, that's not what's required for them to have the office of deacon. So we also understand that the office of deacon extends to men and women. And so we have a number of women who are, who are in the process of moving towards the elders bringing them to you to approve as, as deacons here at the downtown campus. I just could not be more encouraged about this. So when I, when I say, number one and number two, we must not overlook or neglect the vulnerable among us, including our widows. And number two, deacons are essential to the ministry of a church. Number three is, uh, or uh, yeah, number three, and then deploying members into those offices. Number three is that we actually are moving in this, in this area. And I, I invite you to join in prayer and also to ask yourself, is this a ministry God's calling me to? Think about it for a second. What the seven did was make sure widows got food. If you think you could do something like that and your heart pulls you in that direction, let Pastor Chuck know and have a conversation about that um, as he's leading us in the way. Number four, the Holy Spirit leads in both word and indeed mercy ministry. While the apostles prioritized the ministry of the word and prayer for their particular calling, they instruct the people to put forth men who are full of the Holy Spirit. So we don't understand that this, this ministry of word and prayer is high and exalted and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and all these other ministries are just sort of mundane and for the average normal baby below. No, 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 no. The same Holy Spirit empowers the ministry of the Word, empowers prayer, empowers the deacon who gives food to the widow. The same Holy Spirit. It's not a zero-sum game. The Holy Spirit empowers the preacher, and the Holy Spirit empowers the window cleaner. I know, I don't want to embarrass them, I hope it's not embarrassing, but if you've ever gotten to church a little early, you might see Sylvester cleaning up out there. It's just his heart for our church. I'm, I'm, there we go. Yeah, amen, brother. <laughs> I mean, it was so, it was so ironic to me because I'm pulling in the parking lot and I, I, I almost hit you, brother, because you, you didn't see me. And I didn't quite see you. <laughs> and I had to wait for him because he's picking up trash in the parking lot. The Holy Spirit is empowering me now, not because I'm anything, because he's something, to preach his word. The Holy Spirit empowers our brother to pick up trash. The Holy Spirit empowers you to do what he calls you to do, to bless these people and extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We all need the Holy Spirit. The piano player... And the vacuumer by the power of the Holy Spirit to serve these people. That's one of the lessons here from Acts 6. All the people were involved. The people put the seven forward. The seven were put forward. The elders laid their hands on them. They all did it to take care of these widows after the complaint arose. Could have been two different churches. Greek speaking, Hebrew speaking, and God showed up and it was even better than anyone could have imagined number five the church cannot flourish without partnership between the leaders and the flock 
This is how God designed it. In our text, we see the partnership between the people and the leaders in working out this particular complaint. We also see the long-term partnership design of elders and deacons. The elders primarily focused on the ministry of the word and prayer, and the deacons primarily focused on meeting the practical needs of the church and ensuring that the vulnerable are taken care of. Conflict resolution happens in Holy Spirit partnership. It does not happen by dividing and throwing grenades and names it doesn't happen by gossip. It doesn't happen by slander. It doesn't happen by politicking. Hey, what do you think? You're probably against. Isn't this terrible? It happens by partnering together. God can see us through any complaint, any conflict, as we partner in love by the power of the gospel. Jesus shed his blood to cover every sin. And it's all forgiven. And we don't have to exact that payment from one another. Number six, no one does this perfectly. Remember who the hero is? Even in this story, the hero is not the elders. The hero are not the seven. The hero is not the people. The hero is Jesus. Jesus does not call us to himself, then to ministry, because we're worthy. No leader leads perfectly. No member of the flock serves perfectly. He does it because he is worthy and to show his worth. We don't praise the water fountain. We praise the water. We don't praise the tool. We praise the craftsman. We, don't, we, we, we praise him. Jesus calls us to himself, having shed his blood to cover all of our sins and satisfy the wrath of God against us. He is one. He is one. Let's partner with each other. In love, let's magnify his gospel to each other and to our neighbor near and far. I asked Pastor Chuck about a particular song, if we could sing to close. And I asked him if we could adjust it. I don't think there's any copyright issues. Um, but it's simply that we would, in our, in our last round, we're going to sing that God is faithful to us. And it's good for everyone to sing, He's got, great is his faithfulness to me. For what do you have if God is not faithful to you? But then he's also faithful to us. So on the last, when we sing it, you know, we have this interesting design where we can see each other a lot better than a lot of churches. I encourage you, on the, as we sing initially, praise God from your heart that he's faithful to you, that Jesus has sacrificed himself for you, that Jesus stands, his blood stands as an eternal testimony of your righteousness. He's imputed his righteousness to you. You stand holy and righteous before him because of the blood. And then when we sing us, look around a little bit. Sing to each other. Great is his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. God, I praise you that you reveal yourself to us. I'm, I'm so impatient I, I, I'm not long-suffering. When things don't go my way, I just want to go somewhere else, just quit. You have borne with us eternally through the blood of your Son. You accept us into your family. Call us your own. You seat us with you. We will be served by the King of kings. Served by the King of kings. You gift us and empower us with gifts to love and serve one another. 
You've given us to each other. We pray for unity and problem solving and conflict resolution in this place in partnership between the elders and the deacons and the people. And we exalt you for your faithfulness in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.